the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's episode is with Lynn Twist, who's going to talk to us about a life of contribution. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Hey, 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 and welcome to the Radical Brilliance Podcast, episode number one. We're going to kick off today with an old friend and someone I greatly admire, maybe the person I most admire on the planet alive today. I talked to Lynn Twist in her home in San Francisco, and you're going to hear about the extraordinary life she's lived of continuous contribution. Even from early in her life, she always had a deep realization that what you give to the world, your contribution, is what defines the quality of your life. Lynn was involved in the Hunger Project from its inception back in the 1970s, and 20 years ago, she founded the Pachamama Alliance, which we're going to hear about in this dialogue. Lynn is constantly thinking about the biggest vision possible. She's thinking about humanity, but not just for today. She's got her awareness on the well-being of people who are not yet born, on future generations. For me, it's so significant and important to have this first episode with Lynn, not just because she's amazing, but because that's what this whole podcast is about too. The Radical Brilliance podcast is about defining the parameters of a life of contribution. Now you could say that there's one fundamental misunderstanding that makes all the difference to a human life. We try to improve our lives through acquisition. How can I get more money for me? How can I make people love me more? How can I get more security for me? How can I have a bigger house, become more famous? The list goes on and on. But actually, if you do the homework, which is what I've done with these many interviews I've prepared for you, if you do the research, you discover that people living in a spirit of acquisition, even when they already have millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, generally still feel like there's something missing. Lynn will point out in our conversation today that you can make a flip at any point. It's not that the flip comes after you've amassed a lot of other stuff. The flip can come at any time. The flip is from acquisition to contribution. Contribution means that the fundamental question of your life is no longer, what can I get for me, but what can I give? Now, when we hear about a life like that, which of course is comparable to Mother Teresa or Gandhi or any of the, the big greats, we think it's a life of self-sacrifice where you're going to have to put aside feeling good and put aside getting anything for yourself because you're going to be, you know, some kind of saint. But Lynn demonstrates that actually a life of contribution is the very foundation of everything we long for. To feel fulfillment and relaxation 
To feel your life has meaning and for it to overflow into great relationships and good energy and good health and good flow of money, all of these things come naturally and easily when your life is dedicated to contribution. And there is no one better that I know on the whole planet to demonstrate this for us than the amazing Lynn Twist. That's the invitation also of all of these conversations which are coming up, is what can I give? How can I dedicate my life to making the greatest possible contribution to as many people as possible alive today, and even to people who are not yet born? That's also what I mean by radical brilliance. Please stick around at the end of the podcast, because when we're done talking with Lynn, what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do in every podcast, I'm going to condense down the essence of what we got from the dialogue, and we're going to turn it into a practice that you can try out in your life for a few days after you've heard this conversation today. So, without further ado, let's shift over to the wonderful, beautiful, amazing, brilliant Lynn Twist and the conversation I had with her at her home in San Francisco. Enjoy. How did all this, how, how did you end up being Linduist? <laughs> how did you end up leading this extraordinary life of, of, of um, this, you've called it often, you know, the privilege to serve, you know, mm. how did all this, how did your life take that direction? Um, well, that's a beautiful question and thank you for the wonderful kind words and acknowledgement and it's a joy to to hang out with you and be part of this Always. Hmm. radical brilliance. Is that what you call it? Radical brilliance, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that term. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so how did it happen? Well, I, I don't know. That's the real answer, and then I'll tell you a, a story. Um, um, I had wonderful, wonderful parents. Um, so that, that's a factor, and I want to acknowledge that. I had a, a beautiful childhood. Um, my father was a musician, a, a band leader in the big band days, and my mother was very uh, eager to raise us in a way that it was inclusive and um, open uh, to all kinds of people. And we, we grew up in Evanston, Illinois, mm -hmm. outside of Chicago, because uh, even though both my parents were from the West Coast, my mother from San Francisco, my father from Oregon, but uh, since my father was in the big band days, it was before television, and they tr we, they traveled all the time. His orchestra, his band was. Uh, for a while, he had Dinah Shore as his girl singer. She was very famous at the time. Oh, right. um, <clears throat> um, so big band for people who are not familiar. That's something often. Sometimes I've seen it happen in a park, right? It's, it's the, well, it, they they were in the big hotels, uh -huh. um, at, like the Waldorf Astoria, uh -huh. the Pump Room in Chicago, the. Mm. In, in, in San Francisco, it was the Fairmont and the Mark, uh, the big hotels where people went to dance because there was I no see. television then. People okay. also danced to the radio. And right. he had a program on uh, at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago yeah. that, you know, I don't know, I think millions of people listened to it and they would mm. dance around in their living uh. room. And then in the summers, they went to big um, convenings um, of summer resorts where, I, I mean, I just remember little twinkle lights around a big dance, giant dance floor outdoors where there'd be hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people dancing to my dad's big band. Mm. Um, 
so that was a, a life really that that they lived and my mother was uh, very very eager for us to see my dad as much as possible so they moved to the middle of the country or close to the middle of the country Chicago and she picked Evanston Illinois because it was the only integrated school system public school system that she knew of in the whole country mm. in the 50s this is a long time before the civil rights movement mm -hmm. And I didn't know that till later, but um, that was very important to her that we went to public school. She had gone to mm. private school, and she mm. was from a, a long line of sort of aristocratic, wealthy family, and she didn't want that for her kids. Mm. So that was something that I didn't even know was forming, forming a, a, a way of seeing the world for me. And then my dad died very, very suddenly um, of a heart attack yeah, just before yeah. my birthday when I was 13. Yeah. And... Um, I played the piano, and I was the musical one of the four children, so we had a very, just a wonderful relationship. We paid two pan piano recitals. We had an organ and a piano mm -hmm. in our living room. Mm -hmm. He was just like, he hung the moon. He was my mm -hmm. my best friend, my idol, mm -hmm. my teacher, my my mm -hmm. beloved. And when you're mm -hmm. a, an adolescent girl, you're kind of in love with your dad, or mm -hmm. at least I was. Mm -hmm. And then one day, we all went to sleep. Mm -hmm. It was a Sunday night. Mm -hmm. The next morning, morning, we all woke up. But he didn't. He was dead. He was 50 years old. He died in his sleep of a heart attack. Wow. It was so shocking. Mm. My mother was 46. Mm. Uh, we just couldn't believe he was gone because mm. he was music. He mm. was a huge personality. Right. When he died, I thought it was my fault. Now, mm. I was 12, 13, so I was a rational human being. But I wasn't practicing my piano the way he wanted me to. Uh. I wasn't doing as well as I should in music. Mm. I thought. Mm. I don't know if he thought that at all, but um, I had missed a couple of piano lessons. I, I had this sort of, was raised a Catholic, so I felt guilty. That's kind of what you get trained in okay. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Catholicism. Yeah. And I remember becoming very, very, what I would now call spiritual, but at that time, I got very religious after he died. I started going to Mass every day. Yeah. Yeah. I... Uh, got very close to a nun named Sister Benjamin. I, mm. My mother was just overwhelmed with fan mail and the 36-piece band that she had to figure out what to, how to handle these, this wonderful, they were all men. She was just totally overwhelmed. So I, I went, uh, I'll say, inside to you, myself. You aspired to be a nun in, in your... I in thought your, about being a nun. Yeah. I thought Mother Teresa was the most awesome person on planet Earth. And... Um, and I saw the nun story with Audrey Hepburn. Right, right. <laughs> and she looked so gorgeous <laughs> in her black and white nun ensemble. I thought, oh, maybe I should be a nun. Huh. You know, it was kind of romantic at the time. Yeah. Um, and I got very religious, and I did it um, silently because I was a very popular kid. I mm -hmm. was cheerleader. I was homecoming queen. I was president of this. And, mm. you know, I went out with the captain of the football team. So I was that kind of kid in a big po public high school. And... So my religious, or what I'll now call spiritual life, was very private. Mm. Um, so you were going to mass like before school? Before school, secretly. like at you yeah. know five six a.m. and then wow. I'd come back and I'd be ready for carpool and uh -huh. I'd be the you know co-ed uh -huh. high school girl. Okay. Uh, but I, I sort of led a double life mm. and but at school I also because I was in a big public high school with a lot of people of color, I joined the the baseball team that was all black and I was the only white girl on the team. I I was really drawn to people that I now would look at as people 
who were pe people of color or underserved, and I was a popular girl, so I brought a whole kind of credibility to that mm. um, in, a, in, a, in a time when we were pretty divided. And that, that impulse in you to be inclusive, do you think that came from the influence of your parents? Well, my dad, as a musician, had a huge respect for Duke Ellington mm -hmm. and Louis Armstrong mm -hmm. and Ella Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. And at that time, in the 50s, he died in 1959, uh, the black and white world had not come together. Uh, there wasn't much crossover. Yeah. But he wanted it. Yeah. And he really admired uh, the black performers and right. almost like had a reverse prejudice, thought they were better musicians, hmm. much more talented. It lived more deeply in their soul, and he talked about it that way. And I saw them that way, and we actually befriended. We had some contact and had a, a, had a, a, a relationship with Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington when I was little that I don't quite remember, but hmm. that was very, very special to my parents. So there was a, a openness, a willingness, an eagerness to connect with everyone everywhere. And my mother was a very much of a like civic leader. You know, she was in every auxiliary. We don't talk that way now. But, you know, mm -hmm. the ladies auxiliary for the hospital, the ladies auxiliary for the museum. But she also was president of something called World Adoption, Adoption Infant Foundation, WAIF, and um, was interested in adoption of children all over the world. So I, I'm sure I had a lot of this influenced me. I, I, I don't think about it much and I didn't really, it wasn't as overt as I think it was sort of an undercurrent of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course I, I uh, when I went to college, I went to Stanford University mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I, you know, really, it's a very, it was a very an elite school at that time. Mm -hmm. there, were, there was six men to one woman, was you know. Already in Palo Alto? In Palo Alto. Yeah. All, and, um, and I remember thinking there was something wrong about that there. And it was during the 60s then. Um, and uh, it was during the Vietnam War. Right. And I got involved in the civil rights movement. Uh -huh. I got involved in ending the Vietnam War. I got involved in activism in college. Mm -hmm. Dave Harris was the president of my class. He married Joan Baez. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a fer fervent, um, let's say, fertile time for uh, a young woman to realize that this war was a mistake and people that I knew who dropped out of school were getting drafted. Mm -hmm. There was a draft. Mm -hmm. uh, people were coming back sick and maimed and, and killed and, and not coming back. Uh, some of my high school friends who died in the war. Mm. I, I thought, this is crazy. What are we doing? So you were involved in the civil rights movement and the, and the Vietnam protests and still maintaining your Catholicism? Uh, I st sort of stopped being a Catholic. I became okay. more of a spiritual person. Okay. I mean, I was still a Catholic, I guess, but sort of, I didn't really, that didn't really need it. I, it didn't really speak to me anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I remember, I remember just thinking, the world is a mess. And, and one of the huge events in my college days, <clears throat> a series of assassinations. If you yeah. remember, when I was a freshman, our president, who we adored, mm. John F. Kennedy, was killed the first year when I was in college, 1963 yeah. in November. 
uh, 22nd, 23rd, I remember it was big game, and I'll never mm. forget that it was just impossible that he was killed. Yeah. And then in five years, all of our heroes were assassinated. Bobby so Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy, yeah. John Kennedy, yeah. Malcolm X, yeah. Martin Luther King. Right. Four assassinations in five years yeah. in the 60s when mm. we, I'll say my generation, we were you know, going to Mississippi to sign up voters. We were, uh, mm. we were totally into the civil rights movement. We mm. wanted to do anything and everything to stop the war in Vietnam. We mm. were, uh, the women's movement was just beginning to start. So I was in a very fertile period. At Berkeley, things were really going wild. At yeah. Stanford... Which year was Kent State, the shootings at Kent State? Uh, I think it was right around there, too. Yeah. I mean, things were really, it was really a time when uh, you know, Malcolm X had made a huge uh, statement, um, and then when he was assassinated and killed, you know, it was just such a shock. Yeah. And then when Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. So this was when I was a young, I don't know, things were forming in my mind. I mm. need to do something about this. Yeah. And those assassinations were like a knife in our heart. I'll say our, all the activists, you know, kind of like, no, mm. no, mm. no. And our response was, yes, <laughs> yes, okay. yes. And I remember feeling that. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when Martin Luther King was killed, I was living in Chicago then. Bill was in graduate school at Northwestern. I was teaching school at a very elite Sacred Heart School. Um, <clears throat> and there were, the city was on fire. There was riots in Cabrini Green, Cabrini green housing mm. area where I was doing volunteer work. So I, I just was one of those people who just, I just wanted things to be different. It, it just wasn't okay with me. I, I was just passionate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I started having children and I don't know. I, okay. I, I, I must say to really answer your question, what really, really grounded me, grounded my upset, my anger, my eagerness to make a difference was the EST training. Right, you met Werner. Which year was that? I took the EST training in 1974 in January. Okay. yeah. And it was just a huge game changer. Now by that me. time you were married to Bill. I was married, I living had three little in San, kids. Living in San Francisco. Had you already founded that, that school f for your kids? I founded it right after we took the EST training. Okay. I realized the EST training which taught personal responsibility, or at least that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that you could make a difference with your life, that your life wasn't about your life starring you, it was about something way more. Right. Uh, that your life, you were given life and the opportunity to make a difference was yours. I started to uh, learn about Buckminster Fuller and start to follow him. Mm -hmm. I started Pacific Primary School with my husband, Didn't Bill. Didn't you introduce Buckminster Fuller to Werner Earhart? I did. Yeah? I did, along with Ron Landsman. Okay. Um, we plotted it because we knew his grandson or met his grandson. What do you remember about that meeting between Werner and, and Bucky? Well, first of all, Werner Erhard is an extraordinary human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, a true genius mm -hmm. and controversial and all kinds mm -hmm. of baggage and all of that. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of the matter, uh, so many brilliant things have come from his sure. original work. For sure. He really coined this term of, of make a difference with your life, which is well, now become... Well, Bucky did, and yeah. then Werner made okay. it popular. Okay. So Buckminster Fuller, um, his grandson, Jamie Snyder, took the S training. And mm -hmm. uh, at that time, I was spotting what we called VIPs, which were like the sphere of influence people who were in the S training to let Werner know this important person, a senator, a congressman, a, a movie star, 
is in this training in Atlanta or this training in, in New Orleans so that he would know how the, the movement was reaching into some of the uh, kind of uh, halls of power. And I noticed that uh, there was a young man in one of the trainings who had written on his information sheet, I'm the grandson of Buckminster Fuller. And I thought, oh, Buckminster mm. Fuller, mm. wow. Mm -hmm. We need to know about this. So we informed the powers that be in that time uh, at, at that time, Werner was informed about those things. And then we ended up meeting <clears throat> Jamie, and my friend Ron Lansman and I, we had this vision, what would happen mm. if Bucky Fuller, one of the greatest human beings on the earth at that time, and someone that I admired with all my heart, and followed, actually, in every way I could, what would happen if Buckminster Fuller meant Werner Earhart? A miracle would occur. Mm. And so we plotted and planned and orchestrated a meeting. And I remember, you know, this is a little fuzzy because it was a long time ago. It was way back there, 1976. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I remember, maybe it was even before that, um, it was at the Franklin House, which is where Werner lived. And um, I was the kind of volunteer-like background person getting coffee and just that, that was my role, nothing that significant. But... They were going to meet for two or three hours, and then both of them came out of this meeting room on the third floor of this beautiful home where Werner lived and worked. And Werner canceled everything for the next few days, and Buckminster Fuller asked his people to cancel everything for the next few days, and they spent days and nights wow. together. They wow. connected just like they'd known each other forever. And I remember either Bucky or Werner said, it's like... It was like being on a, 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 a spaceship heading out into space by yourself on a spaceship and then looking out the window and seeing another spaceship mm -hmm. going in the same direction mm -hmm. and someone looking out the window and realizing you were breaking the same ground, you were going the same direction, you were, you were playing a leadership role that was unique and you weren't alone. And, um, was it out of that meeting that the Hunger Project was conceived? Well, there's many ways of talking about how the Hunger Project was conceived. Mm -hmm. um, my friend Stuart Emery and your friend yeah. had a role in that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Roy Prosterman, a great scientist, had a role in that. Raz and Grassi, who you and I know, had a yeah. role in that. So I want to make sure I acknowledge all those people. Yeah. And I will say that from my vantage point, when Bucky and Werner met, that was the beginning of Werner recognizing this um, phrase a little individual can make a difference that impacts all of humanity because that's what weren't, what uh, Bucky's life was about. That's what he said. Right. One individual. He wanted to live a life in which one little individual, and he considered himself an insignificant, totally normal mm. individual. I thought he was an extraordinary, but <clears throat> could live a life that would impact all of humanity and future generations. And that was Buckminster Fuller's experiment with his life mm -hmm. because he had... Could, you know, con contemplated suicide at age 27 and decided to live in a way that would make a difference. And then Werner, who had thousands and thousands of followers who would kind of do anything that he said, realized these people were becoming so much about transforming their own marriages, their own life, their own this, their own that. Yeah, it was called their dubbed job. the me It generation. was a little bit yeah. too me-ish, too yeah. me generation-ish. Yeah. And he needed to find something to put all this power to work in the world. Yeah. So Bucky and Werner, in their meetings, 
really realized that there were so many huge issues in the world mm. that, um, that they could put to work this energy on a, a fundamental problem. And they had conversations, and Werner had these conversations with others too, but what's the most fundamental problem, this is in 1976, that if resolved would transform humanity, what's the most you know, primary fundamental problem we face that looks intractable, that we can bring uh, to this work in a way that it, it, it transforms its resolved? And they came up with hunger. Not being able to feed yourself and your family was so fundamental mm. to mm. life. Mm. And that we all, we humanity at that time, believed that hunger and starvation even was an inevitable tragedy of the human condition, it would never go away. That all we could do was work at the periphery of the problem and help out a little bit here and there was a mindset that kept it in place. <clears throat> and so, and that there was an integrity issue that we would believe mm. that this was a hopeless, inevitable tragedy <clears throat> and that we would have not a deep enough relationship with all of humanity that we wouldn't be able to tolerate this they saw it as an integrity issue. Mm. And um, right. so out of those conversations, with a lot of other factors, I believe that the Hunger Project was born. So mm. Buckminster Fuller, in many ways, although he's not named a founder of the Hunger Project, mm. John Denver, mm. Robert Fuller, mm. Werner Erhard were named the founders because meetings that followed the time with Bucky was where the declaration to end hunger came. Although in retrospect, you know, the, 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 the name, the Hunger Project, is more associated with you. Well, the name was, a, was a, the title of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a bunch of folders in a file cabinet at Werner's, in Werner's office uh -huh, okay. when he was studying hunger. Okay. So it was called the Hunger Project, uh, you know, like you would call the Couch Project if okay. you were studying couches or the... Okay. You know the flower project. Okay, a way of filing things. And yeah. uh, a way of filing things. So that was how it got that name. Yeah. And we tried to change the name because it didn't seem right. Because ah. we were talking about ending hunger. Right. <clears throat> over and over and over again in the early days, and we couldn't do it. It had stuck. Mm -hmm. um, so we called it the end of hung. So the hunger project colon, the end of hunger and starvation, an idea whose time has come. Right. And you really flew with that, didn't you? I mean, that it, it became just, your thing. I remember when Werner shared with the, the first group of people, which was his advisory board, and I was involved with that group, that he was committing his life to end world hunger. I'll never forget that. I mean, I mm. started crying. I was in the back of the room sitting at a back table. I wasn't in the group. I was mm. serving the group. I started crying. My hands started to, to perspire. I... I thought ending world hunger, it was a completely foreign concept and that people in the room were, were a little upset. They thought, you can't end hunger, Werner, what are you talking about? That you're, 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 you're going to lose whatever meager credibility you have if you go around talking about that. That's what they were saying. Me in the back of the room, I was like, I was like falling in love. I was meant to do this. This is why I'm born. Mm. This is why I'm on this planet. Mm. That's what happened to me. Mm. I had three little kids. Yeah. I was volunteering at EST. I mm. didn't have a lot of time. I was a substitute teacher. Mm. My husband was. And you in, had a school you were running too. I, I was. It's coming. I, I was. I was. I had started a school called mm. Pacific Primary. Mm. I was. Uh, Bill was a businessman. He was traveling all over the place. We had no bandwidth mm. to do anything more. Mm. But I knew this is who I am. This is mm. what my life's about. Mm. I, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. 
it was totally inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had little kids, you know, they were babies. Mm, right. But I just, it swept me off my feet. I'll never forget that. Yeah. That I could participate in any world hunger. And it took me back to my childhood when my, I remember when I was on my swing set in the backyard in Evanston, Illinois. I was probably five years old and my mother called me in for lunch. And I remember her something, her saying something about clearing my plate or, you know, eating everything on my plate because there were children starving in Korea mm -hmm. at the time. That was mm -hmm. the Korean War time. Mm -hmm. And that phrase was used, there's, there are hungry children in Korea, finish your food. Mm -hmm. Hungry children? You're mm. kidding. I, mm. I mean, they don't have anything to eat? How could that be? And I remember when I was little thinking that, that's wrong. I'm going to do something about that. And I was about five, and I remember being in my swing set after lunch in the backyard thinking, I, I, I'm going to do, that's not right. The children don't have enough to eat. The children would die of hunger. No. And then when Werner declared himself in front of this group, in 1977 it was, and I heard those words, I commit myself to end hunger on this planet. Mm. I am, you know, it gets me right now. I, I can't just see knew, it. Yeah. This is why I'm here. It took you over. Yeah, yeah. It took me over. And it became huge for you, right? I mean, you, you, while you were raising your kids, it, it became your life. Yeah, it became my life right. and, and their lives. Yeah, um, exactly. I, the only way to do my family and my school and my Substitute teaching was to include everybody, so I did, and that's mm. my nature. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this house where we're sitting became... Oh, a, it was this house. Mm, right. An annex for the Hunger Project, yeah. uh, where the Ethiopian staff stayed while they were being trained, the Indian staff stayed oh. where they were being trained, the, okay. the Ghanaian staff stayed when they were being trained, the British staff, the, the uh, German staff. So w mm. as we expanded, people would come to San Francisco for training, and they would live at the Twist House. And what was the extent of it? You, had, you were in many countries. With How many volunteers were there? It was in the hundreds of well, thousands. Well, in the beginning, it was just, you know, myself and Joan Holmes and, yeah. a, 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 and some volunteers. Yeah. But we were nested inside of the EST Foundation. Yeah. And EST, the organization, was by then had 75,000 graduates. And mm. they gave us space, and we had $100,000 to get it started. Mm. Um, and we started, the way we started was through communication enrollment, which was going out and telling people hunger can end. It doesn't, mm. it's not inevitable. Communication You can make enrollment. the difference. Uh, yeah. And in enrolling people in the commitment to end hunger, that was mm. the beginning of the Hunger Project. And we enrolled six million people. Wow. Um, and we had volunteer teams all over the United States and all over Europe. Mm. And then it became clear that we needed to confront the reality of hunger. And that's when we started traveling to India. Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, mm. Namibia, mm. Ghana, Senegal, mm. Zimbabwe. You were taking your kids on their vacations <clears throat> to some of those countries. Well, I, I became one of the people that spread the Hunger Project all over the world. So I became yeah. like a Johnny Appleseed, uh, yeah. uh, Joanna Appleseed. Um, and I ended up managing the operations, the fundraising operations primarily in 57 countries at the... Uh, um, and a lot of them sub-Saharan African countries uh, and Asian countries, not in South America or, or Central America because hunger wasn't so much an issue there. Malnutrition somewhat, but mm. poverty and hunger are not the same. Sometimes we collapse them. They're mm. related. But severe hunger and starvation was in sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinents. That's where we were focused. And so when we took a vacation, you know, mm. our children's 
friends, they would go to Disneyland or Aspen. Right. We would go to Micronesia or right. Zimbabwe or yeah. you know the Philippines right. or because right. that's where I had friends. That's where we were working. That's where I had uh, such a love. Um, yeah. For these people that I had the privilege of knowing, and so my my life, my world, became the world of my family. And, and those people came here. Yeah. And my children all, you know, went there. I mean, my son, my oldest son, went away in high school and lived with the Parsi family in in India. He went to Zimbabwe. He went to Nicaragua. He, you know, and my daughter. They, they all wanted to travel because there was like a safety net of people all over the world who loved the Twist Kids. They lived here with mm, them. Mm. If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole Radical Brilliance cycle. You'll have an accountability partner in another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself into the source of your own creativity and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own radical brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab. You, you talked about this feeling you had of... Uh recognizing there are starving children in the world and feeling like, no, you know, it can't be like that. And I'm noticing today, you know, in 2018, make a comparison, there are just, there are so many things like that, so many things, you know, environmental things, the financial system, uh, there's still slavery in the world, you know, there's sex trafficking, there's just, I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think so many people in different ways feel like, no, it can't be like that. Mm -hmm. But then you also, you, you use the word inconvenient. You know, you, 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 you express this, this urge you had, and you said, but it was very inconvenient. And actually that inconvenience is often where our longing to serve gets entangled. So let's, let's see how what you've learned in your life could be applied to our situation today. Because, you know, I was... I was just at this conference recently where Al Gore was speaking, and he was giving a kind of update on global warming. And he said, you know, we don't really actually have a problem. The technology exists today to not only end uh, uh, carbon emissions, but to reverse them. And yeah. we could fix all this very quickly. We don't have, the problem is not in resources or technology. The problem is in mindset. Mm. The problem is that inconvenience gets in the way 
of that impulse to serve. So how could we extrapolate these incredible learnings from how you lived your life and apply them to millennials today? Well, I'll, I'll just I want to acknowledge the Hunger Project was and still is shifting mindsets of mm. apathy, resignation, hopelessness, mm. both in the affluent world and in the place where people are living in conditions of hunger, mm. to inspired, committed action. That's right. the competency that's, that's what, of the Hunger Project. That's, we want to create an epidemic out of that. Right? Yeah, and we... <laughs> you know? we we awakened and engaged and um, ignited millions of people. And I'm not kidding, we did, and yeah. I did that. Yeah. But the Hunger Project ignited me first. Yes. So what first happened was I moved from living a life of convenience mm. and affluence and privilege, mm. really, mm. Mm. Um, to living what I call a committed life where my desires and wants and even some of my needs moved to the background. Yeah. And what moved to the foreground was my commitment yeah. and my passion to end world hunger. Committed life. And, yeah. and living a committed life gives you, I mean, it's just incredible, the life that I've had out of that. I could not have planned, even if I schemed and plotted, mm. to sit at the feet of Mother Teresa in India and learn from her the way that I did. I could not have orchestrated, I don't think, being at Nelson Mandela's inauguration and being in South Africa on the last day of apartheid and seeing the, you know, witnessing that breakthrough. Mm. Or being in Ethiopia at the, uh, uh, during that famine and at the end of the famine, being with women who are redesigning their entire life without any children having had 11 children, and that was the purpose of their life, mm. living in the desert with 11 children, you know, scrambling to feed them and having them all starve to death, and then still be alive yourself. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about life events that you couldn't dream of, that mm. I've had, they've been given me. It's just mm. like, how did that happen? Mm. And it came out of my commitment waking me up in the morning, telling me what to wear, telling me who to meet with, telling me where to go next, not my desires or my wants, right. or what's convenient for me. Right. It, it took me over. It became, and it is now, who I am. So yeah. I, I recommend a committed life yeah. rather than a life starring you, a, a life <laughs> where you right. give over the life you've been given to something larger than yourself and particularly... You know, I, I, some I work mostly with millennials. You know, I work with younger people. Mm. And I think so many people, they, 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 they intuit, they get a sense of what you're talking about. And this is, this is the shift, you know, it feels to me deeper down than anything to do with resources or technology. This is the shift, is moving into a life of contribution mm -hmm. and recognizing that that's a more fulfilling life. So I think that I think this, if we can find a way together to see how can we take the principles of how you've lived and how you are living and, and, and create a blueprint for younger people that mm. a life of contribution is actually immensely more fulfilling yeah. than a life about me. Well, I, I recommend this thing called a committed life mm. because it, it allows you, and I especially recommend committing to something so almost impossible mm. <laughs> that you may not ever be able to take any credit for it, yeah. that it may happen after your own lifetime, 
It may get resolved after your own yeah. lifetime. So it, your identity doesn't get mm. entangled with it. Mm. Um, because then you can truly be a bodhisattva, a selfless servant. Mm. Um, you know, and I didn't really realize that was happening to me, but Buckminster Fuller was a huge example for me. I mean, I can't even say how huge. Mm. Um, and, and once I realized I, little me, mm. could end world hunger, could play some role in ending world hunger, my life could make that kind of a difference mm. to not just leave this planet better than I found it, but really, really change the trajectory of human history, that mm. I could do that, that I could play some role, some you know, modest or humble role in that. It lit me up like a candle. It, mm. Life was completely transformed. Yes. And then what to do and whether I'd go to this movie or that movie or have dinner at this restaurant or that restaurant, simple little, you know, kind of nonsense things that used to take up a lot of my energy. Well, which restaurant or which movie will empower me in my job of ending world hunger? Right, right. So every, every decision is made relative to that core commitment that you've made to... Because it, 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 it ennobles you. Yes. You realize you're the instrument of something larger yes. than your own life. Right. It takes you over. It, yes. it uses you. Yes. In the best way, you feel used. Yes. You feel... You matter, you feel, and you feel guided, right. and you feel open to guidance. I was, uh, I was remembering that Apple computers, you know, I've had an Apple computer since the very beginning, so I had, you know, version one of the software. Now it's in 10 point something. So they go through these little upgrades, little upgrades, little upgrades, and every now and then they do, they do a complete redo. It's like a complete change of architecture. I know that happened when they went to, to system 10. And this wasn't just rearranging the bits. It was like a, a, a complete, complete start again. And I feel that's what you're talking about. This is not about tweaking a personal life or make, you know, volunteering on, a, on, on the weekends. You're talking about a fundamentally different way of living life. That's, it's a complete reboot. And of course, if that reboot became epidemic, we would not have any problems on this planet. We'd have everybody contributing to a better world. So what's it going to take for people to, in large numbers, to make the kind of shift that you did and to discover that when you do that, you don't give up anything, you're only blessed. Yeah, you, you gain everything. I mean, it's just incredible, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the happiness, the contentment, the, mm. the nourishment that people are looking for. It, it's, it's, there's that wonderful quote from um, Albert Schweitzer uh, speaking to a group of, I think, high school students. The only ones of you who will truly be happy are those of you who've sought and found how to serve. Yeah, yeah. And it is so true. Yeah. And it's not trite, and it's mm. not, and it's not a formula or anything. It's just mm. true. Yeah. We're given this life. This mm. is a gift. Yeah. It's a blessing. Mm. You know, with all its warts and problems and breakdowns and craziness, it's a total blessing. And so what are you going to do with your one Wild and Precious Life, that wonderful poem by Mary Oliver. Mm. And for me, I didn't really get that until, um, until I saw it in someone else. So Bucky, for me, okay. <clears throat> I'll just say one way of, of giving, it to, giving people access to this is by giving them access to people who've taken a stand. Just like a kind of osmosis. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you think about the people we really admire, mm -hmm. really respect, mm -hmm. they took a stand with their life. That's yeah. Martin Luther King. Exactly. That's Jane Goodall. Yeah. That's Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. That's, you know, Nelson Mandela. All of them, all of those people that we really, that really changed trajectory history had a spiritual root, number one. Okay. Were c committed to transformation, not change. That's a different distinction. They, they were fine with change, but they were committed to transformation. And they lived their commitment. It wasn't on the side. It was who they were, who's, who they are. Yeah. say that about Jane is still alive. I'm talking about people who are passed mm. away. But, but we still, you just hear Martin Luther King's voice on January 15th on his birthday, and you, you sit up in the car straighter. You get inspired. You st I mean, I start to cry when I hear it, just the sound mm. of his voice. Mm. And I'm distinguishing taking a stand, which is what I was given the opportunity to do. I took a stand with my life. Yeah. It wasn't an opinion or a position that I'm against this or for this. Those are, uh, I'll just say that I, I, I really believe that a position is really a point of view. And a position always calls up its opposition. So if I say yes, it creates... No, if I say up, it, it really creates down. Yeah. If I say pro-life, it creates pro-choice. Exactly. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And it's really a point of view. Like you're sitting across from me and we're looking at each other. You have this point of view of the room I'm in. It's totally valid and true for you. No one should argue with that. My point of view is completely different. I see a completely different picture. I'm looking at this side of the room. And my point of view is just as valid. If you try to argue with me about my point of view, because your point of view is different, it's fruitless. You know, that's our United States Congress. Position against position against position. These are points of view that are all valid. Once you take a stand, yeah. you relinquish your point of view, mm -hmm. you relinquish positionality, and what you gain is vision. Okay. What you gain is vision. Mm. And you see all points of view. They're all valid. They're all useful. Even if you don't agree with them, they inform you in generating and fulfilling a grand vision that transcends points of view, that transcends opinions, that transcends positionality, and that actually moves the dial, that gen changes the trajectory of the human family. That's, so, what, that's so, what those people have done. Well, let's imagine that there's, um, there's somebody of 23, 25. I think you met my son, Abby. He's 26, uh -huh. yeah? Yeah. Let's imagine there's someone watching this or listening to this going, okay, I'm in. I, I want that. So, yes, I can see I've got all my points of view. I want to take a stand. I want to make a difference with my life. What's step one? What's, where, where do I go from here? Well, I have all kinds of programs I could recommend because I took mm. them myself or I delivered them. Well, what do you them. think? What, what would be a good program for well, somebody, somebody who really wants... They, if someone's listening to us and says, okay, I want to make my life about making a difference, where do I go from here? Well, I'll just, I, I just must say that the Pachamama Alliance is about this too. Absolutely. I mean, this is very we'll talk much about that in a minute. Yeah, do. sure. Uh, and the Awakening the Dreamer Symposium, mm. which is a three, four hour program, takes people from denial mm -hmm. up to mm. despair, mm -hmm. which sounds bad, but it's good because <laughs> you really look at what's going on mm. and it, it, you, it's disparaging. Mm. Then you get through the space of despair <clears throat> to often anger and blame. Who, 
why didn't somebody do something about this? Mm. Who's in charge here? Like that kind mm. of a mm. response. Mm. Then through anger and blame <clears throat> to ownership and responsibility, looking yeah. at, I'm, I've got to stop complaining and blaming. I can do something about this. I'm responsible here. From responsibility up to inspired, committed action. That's the process we take people through. Right. I, I am a advocate for a program that does that, the Awakening the Dreamer Symposium. My work at Soul of Money Institute does the same thing. Sure. So there are programs like that, but let me just say for people, you know, the processes that I recommend is you look and see when you were a little child, who were your heroes and heroines? Mm. And why did you admire them? Mm-hmm. Were you one of the people on the, on the playground who always protected the, the people who were bu- bullied? And then were some of your heroes and heroines, was there, is there a thread there? Are you ultimately committed to a stand for social justice for every human being? Yeah. Every, every human being has a chance to live a healthy and productive life. Or maybe you've always been drawn to art and music and realize that that is the language of love that everybody needs to have access to, that beauty needs to be available to everybody. Mm. Maybe that's what you really, that's why you were born. And that's mm. always been a thread through your life. Every job, mm. every teacher you loved, every book you read that was really special for you. You can sometimes look back in your life and see a through line. Social justice, a commitment to beauty, uh, and uh, uh, wanting everyone to be included, making sure no one gets left out. You know, there's through lines that if you look back, no matter how young or old you are, you can start to see, mm. you know, for you, Arjuna, you know, you're, you're a great communicator and you give people access. You're, I mean, I don't know what your stand is, but I'm experiencing sitting with you that you stand for making uh, the messages that transform and inform, uplift, inspire, uh, and, uh, and create, you know, new horizons and new possibilities for people available to as many people as possible in every possible way you can. You know, <laughs> Boom. That, that's, you know, that's, yeah. you, you probably have always been doing that since you were a little kid, sure. but now you've found your way to yeah. do it. So I say look for what you long for. Look for the problems that really, really upset you, yeah. that you think are so unfair. Mm. There's a key there. There's a clue there. Mm. Look at the people you admire. There's mm. a clue there. Look at the through line of your life. There's clues there. Yeah. I do processes with people. Look at, you know, to really what, what is your stand? Why were you born? What are you here for? Yeah. What is your life really, really about? As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the Brilliance Cycle. 
This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. You can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab. You talked about <clears throat> you talked about some of these people who are exemplified this. You said there's always a spiritual root, and I want to return to that for a minute. I mean, the word spiritual is quite an umbrella that covers many things, and there are certainly ways that spirituality or some kind of connection with something beyond your mind can be incredibly empowering to what you're speaking about. There are other ways that spirituality can become escapist or even kind of narcissistic. So let's, let's do a little distinction about what, what, is the, what is the kind of spirituality that leads to this life of, of not only of meaning and contribution, but also deep fulfillment and, and, and uh, satisfaction. Um, well, that's a great question, too. I, I don't know, okay? Mm. So that's mm. also the answer to almost every question you're going to ask. Okay. But I'll, I'll tell you that I, I, through working with indigenous people in the natural world, working with Mother Teresa... Uh, being in Africa in in all kinds of tribal uh, ceremonies, there's something that we all have access to. Yeah. It's something more than our mind or our agenda or our ego or our education or our intelligence or our our um, normal capacities. There's something beyond that that I'm talking about. Yeah. I call it spiritual, but you could call it source. Yeah. You could call it something more. You could call it, you know, for indigenous people, um, for shamans, for just indigenous people, for them it's arutam. It's mm. the spirit of the natural world. It's the forest. It's the, it might be, you might call it chi, um, yeah. the Tao. So there's many names for what I'm talking about. Uh, some people call it God. Yeah. I, I know that my life does not belong to me. Yeah. I know that I am the instrument of something. Mm -hmm. And when you think your life belongs to you, you fill it up with your needs, yes. your desires, your petty concerns. Including your spiritual needs and desires. Including actually. your <laughs> complaints about things, including yeah. your yeah. spiritual needs and desires. If yeah. they're all about you. You and your state. Yeah, yeah then, exactly. you know, I mean, I, I respect that and I mm. think that's on the way. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm. But ultimately... The, the, the joy is mm. to become an instrument of something so much larger than your little life starring you and your petty concerns. Exactly. Yeah. And when you are in that space, and it doesn't need to be ending world hunger or in the world of Pachamama Alliance, our mission to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. That's a, that's a big, 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 big initiative, big goal. But it could be something as simple as to give and receive love in every interaction. Right. That's hard work. To be a great parent, a great, to be a great partner. To be an extraordinary father. Yeah. 
to raise children who really know who they are. Yes. Um, it doesn't need to be a giant goal like the kind of things that I've done or yeah. uh, aspire to, to accomplish, but it's really allowing source something more, something beyond your petty, small, I'm, I'm insulting us a little bit, uh, kind of little petty human concerns. Yeah. Our wants, our needs, our the next thing that'll make you happier. Yeah. To release that enough that something else can come through. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. And that's, you know, that's the power of a Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, yeah. he was an extraordinary man, but he was an ordinary man. That's the power of Buckminster Fuller. He he always called himself an ordinary human being, but committed to extraordinary goals. Same thing of Mandela. I mean, when you get to know these people, which I've been the privileged position to know in some mm. cases, very intimately, some people who, who you and I would put up on a pedestal, they're just like everybody else. Mm. But they've made extraordinary commitments, and those commitments, that committed life has shaped them and made them, here's what I want to say, it makes you into who you need to be to fulfill that commitment. The commitment shapes you, the stand demands of you who you need to become to mm. fulfill that stand. Beautiful, yeah. And that is, that becomes your greatest teacher. Yeah, beautiful. If we talked a little bit about Pachamama. So let's go there for, for a little bit. Let, let's go, let's, you know, in, in the time you've got left, let's go, let's go to the story of Pachamama because it's such an amazing story. I, I'd love to start with that, that, I think it was in Belize or somewhere in Central America where you went with John Perkins uh, for something completely different. Tell us what happened there. That's a, that's a, well, I was... Uh, was it Belize? Am I right? It was Guatemala. Guatemala, okay, yeah. So I was completely and totally 100,000% devoted to ending world hunger and the hunger right. project. Right, your plate was full. Yeah. My plate was totally full. I had three kids. Some of them were still at home. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was responsible for operations in 57 countries, countries like Namibia and France, yeah. Japan and Bangladesh, mm. India, Ethiopia. I mean, it was just an impossible job, and we had something like 200,000 volunteers in the United States that I was responsible for our volunteer wow. movement, 40,000 mm. volunteers in Bangladesh. I mean, I had a big, 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 big job. I didn't do it alone, but mm. I had a big job. And I was raising a family, and I was traveling all over the world, and I was trying to get home for the soccer match and the mm. spring sing and the teacher's conference, you know, mm. parent-teacher's conference. So I was maxed. I didn't have one free second. And a friend of mine who was also a large donor to Pachamama, uh, to, sorry, to the Hunger Project, invited me uh, to uh, meet John Perkins, who was a, a, had been trained as a shaman and was a very important member of his board of directors and had worked in the Ecuadorian Amazon for many, many he years. He also wrote the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He so wrote he, the yeah. book, yeah, and he had gone astray and become an economic hitman and then yeah. recovered yeah. and was back in a, in a world of service. And this man, his name is Bob, he wanted me to train his development director in Guatemala for a project that he was involved in there. Mm. And the Hunger Project wasn't working in Guatemala, but I'd never even been to South America or I didn't speak Spanish. I was working in Asia and Africa. That was my beat. That was my world. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then raising money everywhere else. But as a favor to Bob, and because I met John and thought he was a great guy, John and I led a group of people at Bob's request to see their projects in Guatemala in the hills of Totonicapan, Chichitas, Castanango region huh. with Mayans. Mm -hmm. huh. And I was to train their development director to be more effective in raising money. Well, when we were there, 
John, who's been trained as a shaman and had, had done, and been in the Peace Corps in the Ecuadorian Amazon, said, there's a shaman behind all these projects. I can feel it. So we went to see this man mm. named Roberto Poz. Never forget him. This was in 1994, and um, <clears throat> there had been death squads uh, backed by the CIA in Guatemala. Americans were not welcome there in most settings. Um, and the shaman said, I don't work with white people, particularly Americans, and he turned us down. But then he ended up, through John's, I don't know, spiritual power, being willing to come observe our group to see whether or not he would work with us. And he observed our group and he picked 12 people and said, I'll work with only those people. This is all sort of silently behind the curtain. So 12 of us, including John and myself, we went to this place at midnight on the top of a, a, a clearing on the top of a mountain in Guatemala where the shaman had prepared a big fire. Uh, he didn't speak Spanish, he didn't speak English, he only spoke Mayan, but John mm -hmm. spoke enough Mayan and sort of very fluent in Spanish that he translated for the shaman. And shaman told us to lay down by the fire with our feet towards the fire like a giant wa wagon wheel. And we Your did feet that. towards the fire? Uh, feet towards the fire. So okay. we're lying down like this, our mm -hmm. feet are towards the fire and we're like in a big wagon wheel. And this, the shaman started to drum. Mm -hmm. And John had a drum. And the shaman told us to close our eyes and journey. Mm. And I didn't know what journey meant, but mm. I knew about closing my eyes, and I was very tired, so I thought I'd just take a nap. Mm. But then the shaman began to chant this amazing chant and sing in his language. And the chanting and the drumming and the crackling of the fire and the starlit night sky and the lying down on the ground, and I, with my eyes closed, began to what I now know was journey. Mm. And I started to feel my right arm quiver and turn into this strange thing, and I realized it was a wing, and mm. I had to extend it. I could not hold it close to my body for one more minute, and then in seconds later, my left arm turned into this gigantic wing, and I had to extend that. And then I felt this beak thing growing on my face, and I had to fly. I could not lie there for one more second. And I began to uh, extend my wings in slow motion and look down as I began to fly into the night starlit sky. And I looked down at, at I saw myself and all of these people, the 12 people laying around the fire with the shaman singing and chanting. And I could hear the shaman's voice. It was as, he, as if he was still right next to me and the drumming. And I began to fly into the night sky, and it was just magnificent. There was no moon. The stars were super, super awesome and bright. And as I was flying, it was like in slow motion. It, it, in a moment, it started to become dawn, and I started to see that I was flying over a vast, 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 unending forest of green. It was just spectacularly beautiful. And as I flew in slow motion over this vast, gorgeous forest of green as the sun was rising, I saw through the mist the top of the trees and down into the uh, forest, all the way to the forest floor. I had acute vision. I saw little critters 
crawling around on the forest floor, and then I would lift up my gaze and I would see, for far as I could see, this beautiful forest with clouds of mist coming up everywhere, but then a clear sky, and then these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint on their faces and yellow, red, and black feather crowns on their heads started to float up through the trees, through the canopy, up through the forest, up into the sky, calling to me, the bird, in a strange tongue. Mm. And I didn't understand it, but then they would float back down these faces, black down into the forest, and then I would fly a little bit farther along, and then they would appear again and call to the bird with their orange geometric face paint and their yellow, red, and black feather crowns in this strange tongue, and then they would disappear into the forest. And this went on and on and on. And then at a certain point, I heard this very loud drumbeat, and it jarred me, and I, I opened my eyes, and I sat up, and I realized, oh, I'm not a bird, I, I'm a person, and I opened my eyes and I saw the other people around the circle, and the fire now was down to embers, mm. and everybody had had some sort of discombobulating experience, and then the shaman through John asked us to share, and everybody had become an animal, every single person. Shape-shifted, they call it, into an animal, and I shared my story about becoming this large bird. And then it went around the, uh, the circle, and then John had a very, very similar right. vision to mine. Mm -hmm. And then the, the shaman completed the ritual, dismissed everybody, and sat with John and I and said, this was not a normal journey. You're being communicated to. You're being called. Mm -hmm. You're being called by people that you need to go to. Mm -hmm. And I was... I, was, I just didn't buy it. I thought it was a weird thing, but I, I had... I was ending world hunger. I didn't have time to go to whoever these people were. Whereas John immediately knew these are the Achuar people in the Ecuadorian Amazon. We must Who'd go to them. Who had very little contact with the outside world. They'd had almost no contact, yeah. and they had told their Shuar brothers mm -hmm. weeks before when John was with the Shuar. Mm. The Shuar is a neighboring... A neighboring tribe. Who had more contact. They'd right? had contact yeah. for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then the Achuar told their Schwar brothers, we're going to start seeking contact. We know it's inevitable. We see it coming. We want to uh, reach out to friends who will help us understand the modern world and prepare us for contact. Mm -hmm. And John said, this is that, Lynn. They're calling for us. We have to go. I know who they are. I know where they are. We must go. You and I must go. Mm -hmm. I said, there's no way. I got to, I got to be in Ghana mm -hmm. next week. But then eventually those images haunted me, haunted me, haunted me. They didn't go away. They were in my dreams. I saw them when I was driving, these faces. So wow. then eventually John came back and said, let's do a trip, and we did. Yeah. And we took uh, 12 people to the Amazon. We had the first encounter with the Achuar people. There they were, the orange geometric face paint, the yellow and red feather crowns, when wow. we arrived in there territory and, and that was the like beginning. They, they knew they had called you? They kind of yeah, recognized they, you? Yeah, they, wow. they say they brought us there. They dreamed us. They called it, they say they dreamed us there. Wow. And that encounter changed my life. My husband Bill was with me and the yeah. two of us, we, we really got this is, this is what we're meant to do. And they asked, they asked for modern world contact through us. Mm. And there's a wonderful indigenous quote that says, if you're coming to help us, don't waste your time. But if you're coming because you know your liberation is bound up with ours, wow. then let's work together. Yeah. 
And that's the foundation of the Pachamama Alliance. The Pachamama Alliance was really born at that, at that encounter. Because the Amazon rainforest, it's like, I mean, you've said previously in previous conversations that we've had that it's like the lungs of the, of the planet. Yeah, you know, I was all about ending world hunger, but, and I, it took me a long time to leave the hunger project. I had to get malaria and all mm. of that. There's a long story there too. But when I really got clear that the Amazon rainforest mm. was really in many ways the source of the entire, mm. uh, the lungs of the planet, the hydrological heart of the, the rain machine of the planet, mm. and this place where we've been called is the sacred headwaters of the entire Amazon, which is the source of the climate system. Mm. We realized we were at the source of the source of life, yeah. and that these people, the Achuar, the Shuar, the Shiwiar, the Zapra people, mm. uh, the, the Warani, the Andoans, they know mm. and that they must protest protect this area, mm. or um, it impacts every single living system around the world. This is yeah. an area that survived the Pleistocene era, the Ice Age was a Noah's Ark. Yes. Uh, millions of species migrated there mm. and then repopulated life after the Pleistocene era. Right. So it's absolutely critical for the future of life, and that's, that's right. what yeah. has become the Pachamama Alliance. Wow, yeah. How, you've actually been able to put quite a huge amount of, of acres into, into trusts now that can't be touched. Is, well, is that the, true? the indigenous people have done an uh, amazing job of defending their territories yeah. against 10, 11, 12 oil companies, mining companies, incredible odds, against incredible odds they've prevailed. So it's, it's almost completely roadless mm. and pristine mm. in Ecuador and parts mm. of Peru. Mm. And our current work is to put it in permanent protected status. It is not permanently protected. Mm. They protect it with their lives. Yes. They own their land, yeah. but the governments own the subsurface rights. I see. But now that the oil prices are declining and mm. the world does not need more oil, we don't need mm. one more drop. Mm -hmm. We have plenty for the next 50 years and mm. we're converting now to alternative energy. Yes. We don't need to keep looking for oil. We yeah. don't need to keep drilling. We don't need any of this. Yeah. Um, it's time to put this area in permanent protected status, which has never happened before, mm. binationally or nationally. Mm. And the Pachamama Alliance, along with our partner, Amazon Watch, and our indigenous partners in the Amazon, are committed to putting this area in permanent protected status, the first ecosystem in the world to do that. Is any of it in protected status yet? No. Nothing it's, yet. Um, okay. Not really. Mm -hmm. The governments are, there are some places that, like the Yasuni National Park, but at the same time, the governments are fairly corrupt, and mm. they can be bought out of that. Mm. Uh, and oil companies have enormous influence, as do mining companies, and tremendous power and money mm. to make people look the other way. So that is not yet established. How did you feel about the But it's been protected by the indigenous people, and, and, and the work of Pachamama Alliance has stopped any incursions. They're, they've, 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 they've gotten, they have not gotten in there, so that's the, really the point. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy dropping by RadicalBrilliance.com. We've got an ebook for you which explains the Radical Brilliance cycle, the way the cycle gets blocked, and the practices that best open up the cycle again. 
We also have five days of gifts and insights for you, delivered every day by email and video, which go much more deeply into the phases of the cycle, the ways that the cycle can become a kind of diagnosis of blocked brilliance, and a way to accurately find the right practice for each person. In addition, you'll receive a video about the single most important practice that we have determined affects brilliance, and another video about everyone's favorite topic, brilliant sex. It's all totally free, prepared for you as our guest. Please come to RadicalBrilliance.com. Register on the homepage and you'll receive the ebook right away. Then you'll be guided through the five days of videos to take you deeper into your own radical brilliance. How did you feel about the recent election in Brazil? Well, it's a disaster. Hmm. It's, um, it's a disaster. It's a, um, let me say, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amplification of what's happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you how I think we should hold it. Yes. You know, I don't know enough about Brazil. We, we work in the Ecuadorian Peruvian Amazon, which mm. is the source of the whole system. Mm. Brazil's where most of the Amazon has been destroyed and where most of the Amazon is and where the Amazon is now in absolute severe danger. Mm. Um, let me just say that in our own country, where we have uh, a current occupant of the White House who is undoing and um, challenging many of the things I worked on all my life, the way I choose to look at that is that it's a symptom. It's not that particular human being, although the particular human being is doing a lot of damage, that current occupant. I don't like to say their name, this person's name, but, mm. um, but what's it's allowing us to do is all that's been hidden and under the radar and unaddressed is to come up to the surface, above the surface now, to be transformed and addressed. And it also activates people enormously who might, you, you talked about the stages people go through in the, the, in the, um, in the, in the seminar. Symposium, yeah. uh -huh. I mean, it definitely gets people out of apathy and into outrage. Yeah. So that's... Uh, in a way, <laughs> yeah. we were coasting a little bit and mm. now we cannot. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really up to us. You yeah. can tell the government's not going to do it, no matter who's in charge of it. Yeah. And in, in Brazil, we need to create a movement of people that realize this is the worst of our culture showing itself so we can transform it and take responsibility for it. It's not him. Yeah. And, and that's hard to do because it's so easy to shoot at that target, that yeah. this particular man or this particular leader is is mm. all wrong or yeah. a jerk or someone we need to take down. Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean to say that people are, who are working on that shouldn't continue that. I'm saying the opportunity mm. to really look at what's ours to do to transform that which is now showing up, that which is showing itself that's been under the radar, under the rug, under the underground. Yes. We can see it now. Now exactly. we can work on it. Exactly. And we can be ever more effective because everybody's on the on the team now. Exactly. You know, people exactly. are joining the, the ranks like never before. Well, exactly, you know, because I've noticed that in America in the last couple of years where we've had this new administration, parallel to that, we've had, I've noticed, in way increased awareness of yes. racial prejudice, of systemic racism, 
in way increased awareness of, of the effect of colonialism, of uh, gender imbalance. So many things are, the light is shining on so yeah, many things. Yeah, the Me things. Too movement's a perfect yeah. example. I exactly. mean, it's so, and the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, mm. so much that we mm. ignored or dismissed or said, well, that's just the way it is, nothing we can do about it. Yes. We're now actively working to transform in a way that I would say it's a huge catalytic moment. Yes, exactly. Plus, it's been prophesied by the indigenous people that this mm. is the time when um, Pachamama, which is the name for Mother Earth, will humble her creatures mm. by gigantic climactic events. Mm. So they will remember their rightful role in relationship with her. Mm. And they will be humbled. Wanna, on that note, I want to come back to, you know, people listening, and I, I particularly care a lot about younger people, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, you know, my, my friends are all the age of the people behind these cameras, you know, I mean, my, my buddies are, are a lot in their 20s and 30s, I guess I'm just kind of immature, so I <laughs> hang out with younger people, and, and I want to just see if we can bring our conversation up to a close to see how can we really synthesize, get to the very essence of a life of contribution? You know, what, what is it that people need to, what, is it, what, is it, what are the practices they need to install? What are, the, what are the, the shifts that people need to make to lead the kind of life that you have lived and are living? And so that we can, we can have a, a new generation of people coming, coming of age and, and who, 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 for whom contribution is the obvious the obvious norm, you know, not the exception. Um, well, I, uh, I, I really, I really want to say a, a couple things that um, that Bucky said to me that made a huge, huge difference to me. Yeah. Um, once when he came here for dinner, um, my daughter was eight, my oldest son was ten, and my other son was six, and he wanted to eat with the children. He always wanted to eat with the children, and <clears throat> my daughter said an amazing kid profound kid thing, like children do. And Bucky turned to my husband, Bill, and I, and he said, never forget that your children are your elders mm. in universe time. Yeah, so true. They've yeah. come into a more complete, more evolved universe than you can ever understand except through their eyes. And right. I say that to the younger people who are watching this. I know that you are my elder in universe time. I so know true. that you... Yeah. have come into a more complete, more evolved universe than I can ever understand except through your eyes. Yeah. I also know that you're, you have the capacity to know everything that's ever been written with the click of you know, your mouse. Yeah. <laughs> you, are, you were born when the environmental movement was already totally underway, so you understand the consequences yeah. of, of your actions to the natural world. Yeah. The technologies that you have been exposed to and you invented and that you use can and do, they're not going to save us, you're going to save us. Yeah. But they are such an extension of human capacities that we can do anything. We are so powerful that we are now co-creating our own evolution. So that comes with, what comes with that is a profound responsibility yeah. to recognize who you really are, to allow that which wants to happen for the human family, to use you, to yeah. surrender to that, to mm. know mm. that you were born at a time when 
every decision you make, every choice you make influences mm. the future of life for the next 1,000 years. Or, or more, yeah. Or longer. Or longer, yeah. And that this is the first 18 years when we're making this interview mm. of the third millennium. We're barely into the third millennium. Yeah. This is the beginning of the third millennium. Mm. What you will see in your lifetime, I can't even comprehend. Yeah. And for those of you who are born at the end of the 20th century, mm. you will see probably three centuries. Mm. Uh, the 20th century, you'll probably make it all the way through the 21st century because life will be extended yeah. and you'll live more than 100 years. Mm. Into the 22nd century, don't take your life for granted. Use it to make a difference. And if you do that, you cannot even imagine the sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, yeah. radical brilliance yeah. that will belong to you. Lynn, bless you. <laughs> thank you so much. You always knock it out of the ballpark. Oh, thank you so much. You were talking you. about all the most important things. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that incredible conversation with Lynn as much as I did being in her home with her in San Francisco and shooting it. That conversation is available on video on our website, RadicalBrilliance.com. It's on YouTube. And of course, it's on audio on all kinds of podcast outlets. But if you're listening now on audio, you can also watch the video, RadicalBrilliance.com. So in all of these episodes coming up, I want to find a way to translate to you each and every time what we've heard into something you can do right away. You know, I'm all about practice. As we get to know each other better, you'll find out my whole life has been defined by depth of practice. We'll talk more about that. Perhaps we'll do a whole podcast just about practice. We're going to start today with transforming what we got from Lynn into a practice. How can we take everything that we got in this conversation about a life of contribution, where your desires and your needs are still there, but they fade into the background a little bit and your sense of contribution becomes primary? How can we gather all that up and turn it into something real that we can do in our lives starting today? So I want to suggest for you a practice which comes from my book, Radical Brilliance, and the practice is called Write a Letter to the Grandchildren of Your Grandchildren. So let me set you up for this a little bit. You may or you may not have children already in your life. If you don't have children, no problem. You can easily think of a nephew or a niece or just think of any child you know who's, you know, who's young. And then take a moment and just feel the love in your heart for that child. It's not very difficult. Just, just take a moment to cradle that, that child or that young person. Of course, you might have children who are older, but just, just cradle that, that, that younger person in your heart and just feel the love that you naturally feel for your child or for someone who is like a child. You want the best for your children. Most people would easily sacrifice things for your children. Just contemplate that for a moment, the way that you would give things up for yourself to give pleasure to your child. 
All right, let's take it a step deeper. So I have two children. They don't yet have children of their own. They're grown up, but they haven't yet had kids. And so I don't have any grandchildren, but I can easily visualize that. I can easily imagine that my boys have children and then those children are my grandchildren. They are my descendants. They are, they are as much coming from me as my children are. And now in just the same way, it's easy to not just imagine the children of my children, but to imagine and feel the love that I have for them. I can feel the love for my grandchildren. So for you, if you have grandchildren now, just feel the love that you have for your grandchildren. And not just the love, but the way that you would easily sacrifice things for their well-being. If you don't have grandchildren, you can imagine grandchildren, and then you can easily imagine the love you feel for grandchildren. You might say, oh, I don't need my share of ice cream. You have it, if there's not enough to go around. Right? You could say, you take the front seat. There's a better view. I don't need to see. You sit next to the window on the plane. Much more exciting. Most people would gladly sacrifice small pleasures for the pleasure of their grandchildren. So feel that for a moment. Now, you might have great grandchildren. Most people don't, but you might have them. But if, even if you don't, you can imagine, you've just imagined your grandchildren or thought of your grandchildren. Now you can imagine your grandchildren growing up, becoming young adults, and they have children. So now you're going to meet your great-grandchild or your great-grandchildren, the children of your grandchildren. Of course, by this point, you might be quite old. Most people to have great-grandchildren are going to be in their 80s. And now feel the love for your great-grandchildren. Isn't it true that you also love them? Even if you've not yet met them, even if they're not yet born, you love your children, you love your grandchildren, and you can also love the children of your grandchildren. You could also give things up for them. Sacrifice your own pleasure a little bit so they can have a better life. Feel that for a minute, the love and the generosity and the natural sense of sacrifice that you feel for your own great-grandchildren. And now it's very, very unlikely that you would ever meet your great-great-grandchildren the grandchildren of your grandchildren. Almost no one gets to meet the grandchildren of your grandchildren. But you can imagine it, because we just imagine the children of your grandchildren, so it's easy to imagine them growing up. They become young adults, and now they have children. That's the grandchildren of your grandchildren. So that's going to happen probably 80 or 100 years from now, give or take. You can also feel the love for the grandchildren of your grandchildren. Even if you don't meet them, you can still love them. You can still recognize that they are the fruits of your life. They are your descendants. 
And you can also now think that you would gladly give up a few things of your own needs for their well-being. So, when you finish listening to this, I'm going to ask you to write a letter from there. From the love you feel for the grandchildren of your grandchildren. You can find an example of this letter in the book Radical Brilliance. There's a chapter there called This Is Not About You, and you'll find a sample letter there. Also, if you go to RadicalBrilliance.com, go look for this podcast, you'll see that the letter is pasted on that page. So there's a few components that you might like to add to this letter. One component is to apologize. Apologize for the things that you didn't sacrifice. You could apologize for the ways that you went after your own pleasure in the kind of lemming race that we're all caught up in and didn't think about the consequence for future generations. But then you could also tell the grandchildren of your grandchildren the things that you did for them. You could talk about the choices you made to preserve the planet and a sustainable life for their benefit. There might be contributions you're making to the environment, the financial system, to environmental activism, to all kinds of ways to make a better planet for them. I'm going to read to you now the letter that I wrote and that's in Radical Brilliance. I'll read it to you and you can, you can also, as I said, you can find it later. My dear one, I am the grandfather of your grandfather. My name is Arjuna. I was born in 1957 in England and I write this to you now from California in 2017. Well, that's when I wrote this book, you see, at the age of 60. Of course, I will have died before you were born. First thing I want you to know is how much I love you and care about you. I have deeply loved my two sons, who I call by their nicknames, Abby and Shuba. They've not yet had children as I write you this letter, but I eagerly wait for the day when they will arrive, and I know that I will love my grandchildren too. One day they will have children, and one day one of those children will be your mother or your father. I deeply care about the world you live in and the quality of your life. In my lifetime, we all lived quite foolishly, furiously burning oil without heeding the consequences and often thinking of our own immediate and disposable needs instead of yours. I'm so sorry, on behalf of my generation, for not thinking of you more. We talked a lot about the damage we were doing to the earth, but we didn't take a whole lot of action to change things. I have tried, in my own way, to pass on a better earth to you. We drive a hybrid car that uses little gas, and we've ordered a new electric car. I never take a plastic bag in a store because I know it's one more plastic bag whose consequences you will have to deal with later. But most of all, my dear one, I have done all I can to help people to have brilliant ideas, those that can solve problems instead of creating more, the kinds of ideas that can make life better for you. I've done this for you. 
I have dedicated this book specifically to you, grandchild of my grandchild, in the hope that this will be the very best contribution I can make to a life that can be great for you. I can look back four generations into my past and recognise how much more we understand today than they did back then. And so you can look back as you read this and realise how much more you know than I did. You are a more evolved and mature human being than I have ever been and I cherish you with all my love and blessings. With all my love to you. From your great-great-grandfather, Arjuna Arda. So there you have it. That's an example. I'm going to ask you to write a letter like that today to the grandchildren of your grandchildren. You could do it sitting on the metro, on the bus. You could do it in a cafe, having a cup of tea. Just take five minutes to write a letter to the grandchildren of your grandchildren, wishing them the best, wishing them the best world, apologising for any of the ways you might have done less than you could and acknowledging the ways that you've made a contribution. This is a powerful practice because it will help you to focus and to dedicate your life to what is really meaningful. Well, I'm looking forward to inviting you back to our next episode, number two, which I think is my favourite musician alive on the planet today, Alex Ebert, who was the founder of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And that's going to be a wonderful conversation about how creativity happens from beyond ourselves. He calls it celestial archaeology. So come on back and listen to my conversation with Alex Ebert and I wish you a radically brilliant day and a radically brilliant life. <laughs>